Would you like to do some background, please? Yes. No, wait, I'm going to say that again because that was a goofy one. Okay. Should we do Co some back? Ah. Mm. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. I just scolded you like I would scold an animal or a small child. I'm so sorry. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Toodle Pippin Cheerio, sitting across from me is Daniel. Howdy doody, sitting over there, Abby. Isn't that just a, an Americanism? I mean, howdy do. Well, howdy doody is a puppet. Same Still thing. works. Yeah, <laughs> so we don't have any letters or recommendations today, no corrections, no polls, but we do have some news. I have talked Daniel into getting a TikTok with me. We've also put up all of our episodes on YouTube, and we are about to get an Instagram. Yeah, so do follow us on TikTok instagram and youtube if you're looking for a little extra bonus material i'm not gonna promise the quality or the quantity but it is there so daniel what is our text today do you like the 1890s do i ever of course you do everybody likes the 1890s every book worth reading ever written is either set or was written in the 1890s i concur yeah. as a professional yeah yeah well, you're going to brace yourself for something pretty new. What? Um, diametrically opposed, if you will, to the 1890s. The 1980s? No, the uh, 1880s. Uh, it's a bit like the 1890s. Uh, it's got steamboats, railways, threshing machines. They're all slightly earlier models than you might have got in the 1890s, but they're kind of pretty similar. Empire, commerce, science, they're all there too. Again, in a slightly earlier state, but not much in it. But there are still mysteries in our very midst. The great metropolis of London with its six million teeming souls knows not its own face. Does any, does, is any man close to knowing his own nature? Who knows? Well, we'll cover all that stuff in our current book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, 1886. Okay, so it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. The trigger warnings are suicide, murder, blackmail, child harm, and Londoners. Should we do some background, please? Yeah, I don't know much about Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, it is important, I'm glad that you uh, said this, it, it is pronounced Lewis, not Louis. I said Louis earlier, so I'm, get, I'm doing both. <laughs> oh, oh, agent of chaos. Not okay. deliberately, just inconsistent. Scottish novelist, travel writer... An author of romps. You said he was Scotland's answer to Edgar Allan Poe, which I've liked, actually. I think there's... Yeah, there, there are certain parallels there. There you go. Uh, you, you know more about him than me. Go on. So this, this book was written in only ten weeks, and it caused a lot of critical confusion when it was published, as it didn't really seem to fit in any genre. So Robert Louis Stevenson was a, quite the acclaimed author, and people were like... <laughs> they got Jekyll and Hyde, and they are like, What? is this? Why is this distinguished author using some elements of realism mixed with what they used to call shilling shocker trash? Um, which, you know, it was basically like campy crime-filled novels that you could buy for a shilling. It's like about 
12 times as good as a penny dreadful <laughs> that's cute thank you but critics really hated the blend of high and low culture and this is one of the earliest texts that we now call science fiction that wasn't really a thing yet and in fact hg wells about 10 years later would write the first quote scientific romances so this is still like when science fiction wasn't really a thing and this is the next big installment after Frankenstein, which was, what, yeah, was 60 years say, yeah. previously. This seems, this feels more like Frankenstein than it does like H.G. Wells, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. He ended up living in Samoa, and I just thought this was interesting. In our, our previous episode, Cat on a Hunting Roof, in the stage directions, Tennessee Williams says that the set should be modelled after Robert Louis Stevenson's Samoa house. I don't know what's going on there. That's maybe something for somebody else to think about i'm sure somebody has that's a very weird stage yeah, that direction is weird, so stevenson was a really interesting figure uh, he was he was a major celebrity but sort of kept to himself and he suffered from some sort of undiagnosed illness i think a lot of people think it was tuberculosis or, or something in the the lung family of diseases we'll say but it was never formally diagnosed and he died of it quite young he was an atheist who was obsessed with religious questions. He uh, married a woman, but there were a lot of queries about him potentially being gay, in part because I love that this is my favorite little fact about him. Straight men kept inexplicably falling suddenly in love with him with seemingly no effort on his part. So it was just like, oh, hey, I'm a completely straight dude. Oh, I'll go meet that author over there oh my god, I, I think I love him, why? And this just led to a lot of confusion, um, including J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, who never even met him. They were just pen pals, and eventually J.M. Barry declared his love very openly in a letter, writing, quote, I love you if you were a woman, Ooh. dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Later critics have called Robert Louis Stevenson either the last Victorian or the first modernist, and I'm, I'm sure... Daniel will not like that, and I'm sure you're sitting there going, what about Baudelaire? He's the first modernist. Uh, yeah. Here's something that I just, I've got, I'll, I've got a lot of... I'm going to preface this by saying Daniel is half Cornish. Yep. Take well, it away. It's on the mother's side, so I'm full Cornish, but uh, this is something that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote on the Cornish while he was, um, well, he saw some emigrant miners on a train while he was out in the Wild West and said... They kept grimly by themselves, one reading the New Testament all day long through steel spectacles, the rest discussing privately the secrets of their old world mysterious race. I can make nothing of the Cornish at all. A division of races older and more original than that of Babel keeps this close esoteric family apart from neighboring Englishmen. Not even a red Indian seems more foreign in my eyes. This is one of the lessons of travel, that some of the strangest races dwell next door to you at home. So cancel the guy, I think. <laughs> we open on Mr. Utterson, who is a reserved lawyer, uptight kind of guy, but he's also not judgmental. Quote, I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. So he's basically, yeah, he's super uptight, but he minds his own business. So, Utterson has this weird friendship with a man named Enfield, who's kind of a rake and a dandy, and they go on lots of long walks around town together, and these walks are, quote, the jewel of each week. Mm. Queer reading on our first page. I love it. This is the gayest book you will ever read. It makes me so happy. What do you think these two opposites could even find a 
talk about. I mean, Utter, what is Utterson just like, oh, this wonderful example of Baroque architecture, and Enfield is like, mm, yeah, cool, freak me nasty, dusty daddy. <laughs> <laughs> it was reported by those who encountered them in their Sunday walks that they said nothing, looked singularly dull, and would hail with obvious relief the appearance of a friend. So it's more that they're such a kind of long-term couple that they're kind of... Uh, Got nothing to say to They're each other. in a rut, but you know, there's a kind of a true affection between them. But why there's is no it? No freaking or baroque. There's a lot of dust. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's just weird that it's the jewel of each week, and then they get there and they awkwardly walk in silence. They have such a painful crush. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go the opposite reading of you. They're not an old married couple or whatever. They're opposites who just have huge crushes on each other and can't figure out what to say but they just want to be close to each other i find them very sweet uh you know what what they say to each other or don't is not our business let them just be in love these little opposites attract uh yeah i know and now i'm gently scolding you about it (laughs) this is our dynamic okay cool wait why was your narrative voice scottish because it's probably stevenson's oh that's charming okay continue i like it i'm on board i should have been calling him g cool shouldn't i it's a Cornish name, you know. Did you know that? I didn't. Yeah. One day, Enfield and Artisan are out on one of their romantic strolls around Skid Row. They're kind of having a bit of a flannery, aren't they? They're a couple of flunners. The, the idea of the flinner was really big in this sort of period, and it was kind of a little bit poverty tourism. Mm. It's rich dudes sort of taking long strolls. It's, it's the art of walking, especially if you're a wealthy white dude around yeah. the slums. You go for a wonder and appreciate the city for its own... It's state. different characters yeah. in different areas, but there's often like a poverty tourism, like, oh, let's go oh, check yeah, out what the yeah. poors are doing. Well, while I'm wandering around, Enfield points to a kind of dodgy-looking building with a dodgy-looking door, and he's like, do you want to know a story about that place? A while ago, I was coming home from one of my early morning sprees, uh, late night sprees that turned into an early morning one, if you know what I mean. And a I debauch, s- probably. Yeah, if you will. And I saw a horrible little man uh, running down the road. But a little girl is out walking in the street, gets in this horrible little man's path, and he kind of just tramples right over her, knocks her to the floor, tramples over her. A crowd formed around them, ready to attack the horrible little man. He just is like, you know, I'll pay, I'll throw some money at it. With a sneering coolness, really like Satan, he went into the creepy door, came back out with a hundred pound to throw at the kid to make the whole mess go away. So in today's money, a hundred pounds is like 11,000 pounds. So one child is worth a slightly used Prius. You're taking the piss. You're actually taking the piss because... I'm not... I'm sponsored by MeasuringWorth.com. Every <laughs> episode I mention MeasuringWorth.com and yet you refuse to check it out. Only in the real wage or real wealth value of that income would it be worth £11,000. In terms, I'm not going to go through all of the permutations, that's boring, we all know that. But in terms of relative output value within the economy, that's £186,000. So the kind of economic clout £100 afforded you in the 1880s would have been £186,000 today. Just, you guys should know if you listen to any of our episodes, Daniel has a very niche kink, which is going on measuring worth. It's a very good website. It's not kink. It's just a a man doing what he loves. (laughs) Let's just briefly talk about the doctor that comes to treat the child, because he's Scottish, isn't he? And that's a funny bit, because, you know, it's a little self-parody. He was about as emotional as a bagpipe. Yet he turns sick and white with the desire to kill the man. 
there's something weird about the man that just everybody immediately hates. Here's where things get weird though, right? Yeah, the kind of damages that the man paid to the girl was in the form of a check that had been signed by somebody else, somebody that both Enfield and Utterson knew. We don't know who at this point. Yeah, Enfield doesn't name the man. Enfield is like, okay, so wait, how does this creepy dude in this bad part of town go into this really dodgy house and come out with this sort of like publisher's clearinghouse style check at a moment's notice for a lot of money signed by some respectable gentleman? Like, what is happening? That is not that part of town, right? Enfield the doctor, the girl's dad, and the horrible little man all kind of hang around in Enfield's flat waiting for the bank to open to prove that the cash is, you know, bona fide. Yeah, I'd, like to, I'd like to see that. What was going on in that, <laughs> the four of them in Enfield's flat? When they, when they go to the bank in the morning with the little toad man, they find out that the check isn't a forgery, it's a real deal. And Enfield is like, um, I was led to believe that anyone who's ugly is also a felon, and this guy is ugly and honest, so I feel strongly bamboozled. Enfield, who's, you know, still on his walk with his boring, dusty boyfriend uh, and looking at this creepy back door in a slum, he speculates that the creepy guy who trampled the child must have the respectable check-signing guy in some sort of blackmail arrangement, right? Like, that's the only reason why this respectable check-signer would have anything to do with a shady character who you wouldn't want to meet in fuck, even a well-lit alley. So, Utterson... The dry lawyer asks his sexy boyfriend Enfield, "Hey, did you uh, did you dig into this any further?" And Enfield basically says, "No, I want to bury this. Not my business." So he says, "Quote: The more it looks like Queer Street, the less I ask." Yeah, this is this is one of the rare examples in this book of this not actually being a queer reading, because Queer Street was common slang meaning to have money troubles. It's a mispronunciation of Carey Street, where the bankruptcy courts were. Presumably a deliberate mispronunciation. So Enfield and his boring boyfriend, they're still standing in the street looking at this weird building where this weird scenario happened. And he's like, something is really off about this building, right? It's this hovel in the slums. It doesn't have any other entrances that we can see. But you know what? Let's let's not ask any questions. Uh, and instead, he decides to just back away from the whole situation, like Homer Simpson walking backwards into that hedge. And he and Utterson finish their romantic date. Utterson is like, well, what was the name of the creepy man? Enfield is like, well, he was called Hyde. And he's not easy to describe. There's something wrong with his appearance. Something displeasing, downright detestable. I never saw a man I so disliked. And yet I scarce know why. He must be deformed somewhere. He gives a strong feeling of deformity, although I couldn't specify the point. He's an extraordinary looking man. And yet I really can name nothing out of the way. So there's a, there's a nice little kind of, you know, deformed equals e evil type, you know. But yeah, there, there's a load in this about sort of ableism and deformity and stuff like that. We're going to talk about this in the analysis bit, but all of those things are sort of connected. Racial readings and yeah, queer yeah, readings yeah, yeah, yeah. and all of this stuff. I actually really like this in terms of horror writing mm. when language fails, yeah. where it's all these people trying to describe there was just something so off about this guy and they can't figure it out and they're like, well, it must be something physical that we're picking up on. But but there wasn't, and just like that, that, I, that that's a very freaky idea of but, language failing. But also that sense that, like, I don't like what I'm looking at. I can't articulate why. Yes. I'm just going to frame it as a thing that I don't like otherwise, like, yes, deformity no, right. or, you know, ethnic, dubious ethnic background. No, of, cor of yeah. course, you're right. You're, like, right, you're right, it is scary that 
there is something scary about not being able to describe how awful he is. Just so you get that a few years later with Lovecraft, where it's just like the thing that I saw was so horrible, no words could even capture it. So then, you know, we're still on this date, this, this long romantic walk, and this is where Utterson, the boring lawyer, drops a bombshell. He's like, you know what, baby? I know exactly who that check-signing respectable dude is, even though you didn't name names. And Enfield was like, can we just please bury this and agree never to talk about it again? And Enfield, who I love more than life itself, he goes back to never having a single thought in his beautiful himbo head. And if you were able to peek inside his brain, you would just see a loop of Steamboat Willie playing. I have just never loved anyone more. You know, the kind of the, the prologue to the to the novella's over, really, isn't it? Utterson leaves his walk with Enfield and kind of goes home in a slightly dejected state, doesn't he? You know, remember, listeners, that he is a lawyer. He looks at a will he has in his possession, uh, the will of a respectable man named Dr. Jekyll, Jekyll. It's really up to you. And Utterson examines Jekyll's will and sees that everything has been left to one Mr. Edward Hyde. It's a weird will. You know, if you think that's weird enough, listen to this. It's not just if Dr. Jekyll dies, but also if he has an unexplained disappearance for three months or more. In that case, he should be presumed dead. All of his stuff goes to Mr. Hyde. So, Utterson was like, this will's a bit of a mistake. I thought it was bad when we wrote it up, but now that I know about this Hyde guy, it's even worse. Yeah, Yeah, so can we just talk a little bit about sort of um, issues of accuracy in this? Because I know a lot of critics at the time talked about the law stuff, and they were like, this will is not valid. You can't say, oh, if I disappear for three months, somebody else gets my stu- all my stuff. They're like, that's, that's not a thing in our law code that is allowable. They talked also about like the science stuff that's eventually going to come out at the end of the novel, and about how that's all like bollocks and things. Because don't forget, Jules Verne was writing this period, and his science was all very, very accurate. But frankly, I am delighted to announce that this is Jekyll and Hyde, and I don't give a shit if the legal system yeah, doesn't I wouldn't work. really worry about that sort of thing. <laughs> it's like yeah. people talking about like uh, the physics in Star Wars. Friend, I have wonderful news for you. It is Star Wars. You can just let this load down. Yeah. No, I like the Trade Federation. Whatever they're called. You know, those guys. Are you seriously, are you a prequel trilogy sort of yeah, man? they're better, aren't they? Um, <laughs> so it's got all the bureaucracy. So, Otterson, we're back in Dr. Jekyll. We're not talking about Star Wars now. The dark side. There's all that shit in it. Similar. They're very similar texts, actually. Uh, so, Utterson, he goes to visit a friend, Dr. Lanyon, who might know what Dr. Jekyll's up to, because they're old friends. It's a very kind of old boys club type situation. Oh, it's terribly it? eaten. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like a Johnson and Cameron and all that shit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, LinkedIn club. Could we make, in, in this version, could we make Lanyon a little bit cooler. Could we just imagine that when Utterson turns up and asks him for insight on Dr. Jekyll, that Lanyon just takes a big drag and is like, Jekyll? Haven't heard that name in years. Like he's some old pro in a heist film. That's cool. That's much cooler. Smoking is cool. Smoking is cool. You heard it here first, teenagers listening to this. So, Dr. Lanyon says, listen, I still like Jekyll. You know, we all go way back. But I gotta be honest with you, we don't really hang out that often, because Jekyll started going weird about 10 years ago. He got into some real pseudoscience. Stop. What did he say? Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. He began to go wrong. 
wrong in my head. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Scary. Carry on. So Lanyon then elaborates. He's like, listen, whatever weird 4chan science forums Jekyll's been getting into, quote, such unscientific balderdash would have a strange daemon and pythias. Oh, oh, we got a little queer reading here. Damon and Pythias were two, um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, best friends in Greek mythology, famous for their devotion to each other and their willingness to die for one another. So Lanyon's basically saying, like, mm, we all might have, you know, we've all been terribly fond of each other. And but what Jekyll's done is like gone beyond the pale. It, it would estrange even Damon and Pythias. So can we just can we just agree here that Jekyll and Lanyon were clearly shagging each other in an Oxbridge boathouse back in the day? Can we just accept that as like? Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, yeah. Utterson, maybe not so much. I'm sure he's like, oh, my friends and I sure did sexually experiment back in the day. I was the control group. Yeah. <laughs> so Lanyon. He's never heard of Mr. Hyde. You know, he's like, as I said, we kind of fell out of touch 10 years ago. I, he has a new friend or boyfriend or whatever Hyde is. I don't know. So Utterson is back at square one. And he's like, maybe if I could just lay eyes on this guy, because everyone says there's something really weird about how he looks, but they can't figure out what. Maybe I'd be able to figure out what's going on with his appearance. So Utterson starts hanging around in that weird back door in the slums. Mm-hmm. And he, this is where Robert Louis Stevenson writes, to my mind, the worst line in all of classic literature, maybe all of literature full stop. So Utterson thinks, if he be Mr. Hyde, I shall be Mr. Seek. See, I don't think that's that bad. I think that's fine. Uh, The note you wrote here is, leave Utterson alone. You've gone that full leave Britney alone guy. He sees someone who makes his skin crawl for an inarticulable reason, has to be the guy. Utterson says that Hyde looks troglodytic, uh, which, you know, has all sorts of dodgy connotations. Mm-hmm. You know, for like a kind of, most literally it means like a caveman, but I suppose it has like a kind of, could be a sort of racist thing, right? Yeah, that's absolutely, in this period especially, used yeah. as a sort, in sort of racist terms. Let's talk about Kim Veredge in the West Midlands. I don't know what that is. It's a place in the West Midlands. Are you from there? I'm not from there, no. But uh, it has cave dwellings and people lived there until the 1960s. So troglodytes... Until the 19... I'm sorry. Until the 1960s. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry I'm struck dumb. There was... What, West Midlands people? Somebody who, like, worked down at a Tesco? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> goes home to a cave? Cave dwellings, yeah. Are you shitting me? No. Am I being shot? No, you're not being shot. We were talking about <laughs> troglodytes. Let's go back to the troglodytes. Okay, yes. Utterson approaches the troglodytic Hyde and introduces himself. Hyde hisses at him. Like a cat? Like a cat. He's not a people person. I like no. that about him. They have a bit of a hostile to and fro, and then Hyde scarpers into the house and slams the door in Utterson's face. Oh, well, if you excuse me, sir, I need to go scowl at something in private, please. So what Utterson knows, uh that Enfield (laughs) didn't, is that the mysterious door that Hyde entered is secretly connected to the house of Dr. Jekyll. Yeah, the house abuts a slum. Hmm. The door is to the old dissecting room because it used to be a kind of medical practice didn't it so there you go yeah so so now we sort of figure out utterson has waited more than half of the novella to tell us 
that he now we know why Hyde was able to go into this weird back door in a slum and come out with a check from Jekyll because it's part of Jekyll's house that doesn't look like it's part of his house. Yeah. So Utterson is like, okay, I'm old friends with Jekyll. Let's just confront him directly. I'm gonna drop by because um, he's the Kramer popping guy of I'm the a, story. I'm a big popping guy. Yeah. <laughs> Utterson goes to Jekyll's house. Jekyll isn't home, but Jekyll's butler Poole confirms. Yes, Mr. Hyde is sort of an intimate of the house. He, in fact, has a key to that back door. I mean, at least, can we just be honest here? At least he has the decency to use the back door like he's a poor, not yeah, the no. front door like he's people. Yeah. So you you said there's some kind of way that you can interpret this. I didn't really get that. So Hyde, he is constantly entering this other guy's back door. The other guy doesn't seem to mind. In fact, he probably kind of enjoys it. <laughs> he's, he's always going in and out of that back door. I didn't, Coming and going yeah, as he I pleases. Yeah, I didn't really. You're not getting it. It's not. It's not quite twigging for you. No. Oh, my sweet summer child. Uh, so this is, uh, unsurprisingly, in case Daniel and I have laid it on a little thick here. Many critics have read this as a queer reading. Um, Hyde, you know, comes and goes exclusively through the back door. This is a, a hugely queer coded book. That one might be one of the bigger ones. What would the front door be? Riddle me that, literary critics. Uh, Jekyll's front. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not only does the kind of back door thing have certain connotations, but also the idea of a, a really rich guy's house backing onto a slum. People often say this about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that it's a kind of about Edinburgh apparently mm. Edinburgh in the 19th century was like this that it was very sort of pell-mell and all the kind of there were these incredibly poor districts and then like right next door to them these very like upper middle class posh mm -hmm. districts and I suppose London was a bit like that too wasn't it but I think Edinburgh was a bit more stark so some weeks pass Dr. Jekyll has a dinner party <laughs> Utterson manages to stay late after everyone else leaves because he's one of those kind of boring bastards that you always want to leave but stays late he's a hanger on her Jekyll wants to go to bed Utterson's like let's have a go let's have a game of Parcheesi you know that's what Utterson's like so we get our first kind of direct portrait of Dr. Jekyll yeah so we've, we've heard about him this whole time we've never actually seen him until well well into this novella yeah he's still around good looking guy a hearty healthy handsome hunk <laughs> 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 yeah, he's he's so he's basically like if a Labrador or a bed and breakfast became sentient, gained human form, that's what he's like, just like comforting, lovely to be around. Utterson is like, um, I've heard about a little friend of yours called Mr. Hyde, and not a big fan. He is trash. <laughs> um Jekyll <laughs> says the moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde. Oh, that's some addiction yeah. speak if I ever heard it. That's, that's, I can I quit can, whenever I, I, I can want. I can quit whenever I want. I just don't want to. I use Hyde, Mr. Hyde to enhance my social skills. <laughs> um, I have a kind of academic or other kind of disinterested reason for keeping Mr. Hyde in my company. And Utterson's like, oh, well, that seems pretty rational. But I will never, I, I resolve to never like this Mr. Hyde. So... One year later, London is rocked by a vicious murder. We cut to a maid in a nearby house. She's going to bed late at night. And outside in the street below, she sees a quote-unquote beautiful gentleman with white hair approaching another gentleman. You might recognize him. He's a small, weird-looking, dark figure. 
so we're getting we're getting more sort of like physiognomy readings here the maid talks about how she can sort of tell the character of this lovely old gentleman just by how he looks she, she, you know she's not hearing anything they're saying she's just guessing based on his outward appearance so he's kindly he's worldly he's refined and she can read that all in the old gentleman's face a true innocent and he passes by in the street this dark figure asks this dark figure something probably just directions she seems to think and then she kind of is like oh i think i recognize that small man is that is that horrible mr eyed who once visited my master who i really dislike and i couldn't tell you why we don't, I, do, do we ever find out who her master is just somebody in like london society but mr hyde apparently he's on the scene he's on the scene like we don't but i don't think we ever figure out who she works for and then out of nowhere she watches as Mr. Hyde takes a heavy cane that he's carrying and, quote, with ape-like fury, clubs the old gentleman to death and jumps up and down on him like f***ing Rumpelstiltskin. Let's have the full line, please. Please. He was trampling his victim underfoot and healing down a storm of bows under which the bones were audibly shattered Ooh. and the body jumped upon the roadway. The, the fact that um, she compares him to an ape, that's another sort of racial evolutionary reading. So people are still sort of like reeling from Darwin's theories about evolution. Um, there's a whole sort of like class, ethnicity thing, you know, oh, the blurring of boundaries, all these like the rich part of town now borders with the bad part of town. And, Who's and, that guy that was Darwin's cousin that was like, I like your ideas, Darwin, but let's make them more racist. Galton. Thank you, eugenicism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, eugenics, yeah. So the maid sees this gruesome murder, like, I mean, pretty gruesome by any standards. If you saw this in a film today, you'd be like, Christ. Um, and she, she faints, and Hyde apparently runs off, leaving the victim, quote, incredibly mangled. Ugh. There are some scholars who view this as a queer reading. Hooray! <laughs> Do we get the cork? Or hold it. <laughs> I seem to think you're going to hedge that. Well, look, I, I'm tentatively willing to buy that, so sure. Put the cork back on. I'll, I'll give it a queer put, reading. Put a spoon in it. Put a spoon in that bugger. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm not entirely sure I buy it, because look, you know me, I'm all for a queer reading. I just don't think the textual evidence is quite there. Like, clearly there's, you know people out late at night that lends itself to a sort of seedy reading however let's just look at the evidence right Hyde is deeply unattractive and in fact repellent he Some seems like that but he seems to be walking with purpose not like lingering and looking for business right the maid says the old guy looked like he was just asking for directions okay so she, like not like a whole like leaning in like wink wink sort of thing but like hey what's do you know where do you know where you and I could... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. But then he also seemed surprised and upset, the maid said, that Hyde got menacing, which, let's be fair here, if you are out propositioning people in the street, you know, especially men looking for rough trade, you're going to be braced for menacing. You're going to get roughed more than you get traded, let's put it that way. Uh, well, just like, like, I don't think surprise should be a factor here if somebody is like, excuse me. I think, yeah, you're right, right. You're right, right? But it doesn't really matter whether this guy in this instance was propositioning Hyde. I think it's more the point is that mm -hmm. there are a lot of... Late think, night... Yeah, perambulations. Yeah. And you're kind of like, what's 
there's something more to this. I think that's because that's the same with Enfield when he's coming yes. back from one of his sprees. You're like, there's something more going on here. I think, but th you know what? You're right, Daniel. This old codger went up to Hyde and said, "Hey, you fucked up youth beast. You are ugly hot. Let's blow opium up each other's holes until the rays of the dawn bring shame to us." You're right. <laughs> the police get involved because that's their job. They find Hyde's cane. It is made of a rare and expensive wood. Kind of an orientalist reading there, like he has access to wealth, but it's also like... Exotic woods. And also, find the phallus much? So he whips out an unexpectedly large, expensive, and orientalist bit of dick imagery and beats a man to death with it? This is find the phallus if I have ever heard it. Um, so, the old gentleman is called Sir Danvers Carew. Uh, Terrible name. Oh, that's a good name. Danvers. He still has all his money on him. So that wasn't the motive. This was not a mugging. He also has a sealed letter to our good friend, Mr. Utterson. What? Yeah. Small world. It's almost like there are only five fucking people in this novel. In uh, all of foggy London well, town. I mean, I suppose if you, that's the point of the, the rich, isn't it? That they're all mates. Oh, it's a commentary. Yeah, it is. Utterson is Carew's lawyer. Utterson comes and identifies the body, and he also identifies Hyde's walking stick. Utterson and the fuzz, they find that he's done a runner. So Utterson then goes back to Dr. Jekyll's place, and the butler, Poole, shows him into that old dissecting room connected at the back of the house. And it's been actually, he discovers, converted from a dissecting room, you know, back when this was a medical practice, to a laboratory, because... Dr. Jekyll is way more about chemistry than anatomy. But I thought you could make some body joke there. I, I don't want to do it. Utterson runs into Jekyll, and Jekyll looks like hell. He looks like how a hangover feels. Utterson assumes it's because Jekyll has heard the news that his, like, friend or whatever Mr. Hyde is to Jekyll has committed the murder of somebody in their social circle. So Utterson is like, Jekyll, are you hiding Hyde? And Jekyll's like, nope, no hide in this lab. Sorry, you had to drive all the way out here. But Utterson's like, something feels off. So he asks Jekyll, like, did you help Hyde escape from the law? And Jekyll kind of avoids the question, but he swears up and down, I'm done with Hyde forever. You'll never see him again. I can't tell you any more about this, but I promise he's, like, safe. He will never hurt another person. I guarantee it. So, like... We as the reader, assuming this has not been spoiled for you by popular culture, I'm sure most of you know the spoiler, you're left going, what has happened? Has Jekyll locked Hyde up somewhere? Has he paid him to run off? Has he hidden him? Has he killed him? Whatever it is, it's just, it's really messy. And Utterson ain't buying it. Boy, those eating boys sure got themselves into a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> Jekyll says he's received a letter from Hyde who says he's gone. He'll never be back. Oh, well, if we've received a letter saying, I sure am gone, please don't look for me. It puts Utterson's mind at rest. Well, he's an idiot. It put a better colour on the intimacy between Jekyll and Hyde than he had looked for, and he blamed himself for some of his past suspicions. What's he suspecting about Jekyll and Hyde, I wonder? Uh, that they're lovers, that they're, you blackmail. know, blackmail, father and son, potentially, that, yeah, just like Jekyll's been swept up into something, not 
not worthy of a manifest character. Exactly, yeah. So they debate about whether they should turn the letter over to the police. Yes, the dummy! Police. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, should do, yeah. Some time goes by. Thousands of pounds are offered as a reward for Hyde's capture, but he is never seen again. Jekyll seems to get some of his old sparkle back, just his old quarterback energy, and he starts reconnecting with old friends, getting back to work, hosting his fabulous dinner parties. But then, one day, after months of socializing, Jekyll just disappears. He goes back into total isolation and refuses to see anyone, so very Puxatawney Phil over here saw a shadow. So Utterson is like, what? It, no, I thought you were back. What's happening? So he goes back over to Dr. Lanyon's house, the, the third member of their group, just to see if he knows what the fuck is going on, even though Lanyon and Jekyll have kind of had a rift over science years ago. And Utterson is shocked by how old, pale, and bald Lanyon is. Lanyon has had a terrible shock, one that is apparently going to carry him off to his grave in a matter of weeks. So Utterson, who's not one to do much of hand-holding over Lanyon's apparently terminal diagnosis, is just like, hey, sorry to hear that. So, um, about Jekyll. And Lanyon is like, I'm dying over here, and also Jekyll is dead to me. Can we have the cat anus? Please. I'm quite done with that person, and I beg that you will spare me any allusion to one I regard. As dead. Ooh, they're so, yeah. bitchy. Yeah, they are quite a bitchy circle. Bitchy exes. Um, my major question in this section is, what happened to Enfield, Utterson's dumb boyfriend from the beginning? I hope he's off at like an erotic masquerade in Versailles. I hope he's, I hope he's making a super alcoholic punch and French kissing Oscar Wilde and leaving flaming bags of poop on Lord Alfred Douglas's doorstep. Oh, Enfield, do you fascinate me? (laughs) (laughs) Two weeks later, Dr. Lanyon is dead. And nobody really seems to care that much. Uh, Yeah. Hyde is still missing. And Jekyll is pulling a Howard Hughes. Yeah. I.e., he's a recluse. Uh, Maybe peeing into mason jars. I don't know. I can't. I'm not going to. That's not my business. Yeah. Dr. Lanyon has left Utterson a letter, and it's labeled quite clearly only open this letter if dr jekyll disappears i gotta be honest i would open it immediately immediately oh hey girl hey enfield shows back up oh thank christ this book was getting very vanilla without him so utterson is on one of his long walks with his beautiful dumb himbo boyfriend um, after getting distracted by a lot of his chaotic exes and they're just happy that this like whole weird chapter seems mostly to be over um so they're they're just back on their like delightful little strolls with no drama now because they have nowhere else to walk in all of foggy london town they find themselves again at the weird back door to what they now know is jekyll's lab they're walking there, and surprise, surprise, Jekyll, who's gone full recluse, pops his head out of an upper story window. Hello. And I, <laughs> oh my gosh, you have all, literally all of London. You do not need to poverty tourist around the projects, nor do you need to linger by your weird ex's house. Utterson sort of awkwardly introduces his new boyfriend to the boyfriend he kind of wanted but could never get, and he says that he and Enfield are cousins. 
Cousins. I've read the Iliad. I know what cousins means. So Jekyll, he says that he's been unwell, but then he starts acting very odd, and he's like, oh, I can't talk anymore. I gotta go. Can we have the full bit? Uh, sure. The smile was struck out of Jekyll's face and succeeded by an expression of such abject terror and despair as froze the very blood of the two gentlemen below. They saw it but for a glimpse, for the window was instantly thrust down. But that glimpse had been sufficient, and they turned and left the court without a word. Ooh. That's such a weird bit, isn't it? Just uh, so what is happening is, is does Jekyll have an illness that's having a flare-up? Is he upset that his ex started dating somebody younger and hotter? Because Jekyll, that's the gay circle of life. You just have to accept it. And Daniel wrote here, this is another unholy balcony scene. You love comparing things to Romeo and Juliet. There are lots of unholy balconies in, um, yeah, in our uh, back catalog. Yeah. One night, Poole, you remember him? He's Jekyll's butler. Jekyll's bootler. <laughs> he <laughs> rushes to Utterson's house and says that Jekyll has locked himself in the lab and he refuses to come out. Can Utterson please come and help? Apparently there's some sort of drug that Jekyll needs and he's been sending his butler all around Toon to find it. And then sending him back when it's not pure enough or not working. Ooh. Oh, these are my emotional support drugs. I need them. Exactly, yeah. So Utterson goes round to Jekyll's house and there's a really great bit where he comes in and all of... Jekyll's servants are cowering in the main hall of the house. Utterson's all like, come on, come on, you should be hard at work serving your master, surely. And then one of the servants cries. Poole says, hold your tongue. Yeah, he turned into Samuel L. Jackson from Pulp Fiction. He's like, bitch, be cool. Um, whenever the butler comes in to deliver the drug, all he sees is a small man inside uh, wearing a kind of mask and hiding, wriggling Ooh. behind crates. So he can't be seen. Wriggling? Wriggling. Daniel, if you, so help me God, if you tell me that this is the night that break dancing is invented, I'm going to walk off the show and never return. Wriggling. It's a creepy bit. Something's going on in Jekyll's back office. Wriggling. So oh, So Utterson and Poole go over to the office and knock on the door. Oh, uh, Mr. Utterson, sir, asking to see you. A voice answered from within. Tell him I can't see anyone, it said complainingly. Sir, Poole said, looking Mr. Utterson in the eyes, was that my master's voice? That's, that's a spooky bit, isn't it? Ooh, a weird voice, a weird alien voice. So they fear the worst, they get an axe, they break into the room, and they see the body of Mr. Hyde, who heard them coming and poisoned himself to evade capture. Oh, God, that escalated quickly. Yeah, he is dead. But where is Dr. Jekyll? So the room itself is very creepy. Everything in the room is destroyed, including a religious book that Dr. Jekyll loves, which has, and th <laughs> th this is actually like, if you picture it, very like- It's a good bit. Yeah, it's a good bit. So it's this religious book, Dr. Jekyll notably loves it, but it's been defaced in Jekyll's own handwriting with disgusting blasphemies, which I think is kind of hot. <laughs> and they also get, the, so Utterson and Poole, the butler, turn and get spooked by a full-length mirror that reflects back to them their own horror at the scene. So that is a great detail. I got actual chills when I read that. I demand the full quote here. I would, I would think less of you if you didn't. Because I think this is the best book, bit in the whole book. Next, in the course of their review of the chamber, the searchers came to the cheval glass, into whose depths they looked with an involuntary horror. 
but it was so turned as to show them nothing but the rosy glow playing on the roof, the fire sparkling in a hundred repetitions along the glazed front of the presses, and their own pale and fearful countenances stooping to look in. This glass have seen some strange things, sir, whispered Poole. Because this is such a weird bit, because the mirror is like a kind of, it's about duality, right? Right, yeah, 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 mirror is duality, who knows? But it also has its own kind of space, the depths of the mirror. That's creepy, that it's like both replicating, but also has its own world inside it. Yeah. So it's a, but that's the crazy thing that's paradoxical, isn't it? It creates a sense of duality, but it also, so it kind of tells us what the, the solution to the mystery is yeah. in advance. But it also it doesn't because they see it as its own space. Like mm -hmm. it tells us what their illusion is as well. That they they think that they're dealing with another person and they think they're dealing with another space. Also, the mirror is a witness. I like this thing about the mirror having seen things. That the mirror has its own kind of agency. This kind of it's a know, memory. Yeah. yeah, we'll never know. But the mirror has seen shit. Also, it's weird that Utterson is like, why would Jekyll have ever had a mirror in his office? I don't know why you would specifically question having a mirror. It's I know, I know the answer to that one. It's the fact that it's a cheval glass, like a big long one, which is a big, like, full. I'm getting dressed. That's a very specifically like I'm at my toilet. I'm getting dressed. Like it's. No. I think it has specific connotations I, to a particular I, room. I know that, but nevertheless, I'm still like, if I walked into a room where a guy just killed himself and I saw a mirror, I'd be like, I wouldn't be like <gasps> mirror. You know, I'd be like, well, I think I would in this context when you consider what the room is for and the fact that you are men, not women. I think there's a lot of gender stuff, a lot of professional stuff here. That that actually makes a lot of sense to me of like, that's a weird, creepy detail. I can guarantee that Enfield has one of these mirrors in every room. <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe, but Enfield also doesn't have a dissecting room turned um, apothecary chemistry or chemistry dead. room. You know, there were there were... I think more rules about what rooms did. So you, that's, a, that's a little clue to what we're going to discover. There's all like chemistry sets everywhere, a, a book full of obscenities, a dead guy on the floor, and you're like, look at that mirror. Like if there was a toilet in the middle of that room, you'd be like, what the <laughs> fuck? That's why I fell in love with this place. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like just something in this context where you're like, why is this random thing in this historical context? It's the same way as like, if there was a bed in the middle of the room, you'd be like, why? I don't think I question that either, to be honest. I I think I'd be so focused on the dead guy. I mean, yeah, like obviously some things take precedent, but that's why he notices it last, doesn't he? So they find in this completely destroyed lab, three pieces of paper and all of these are addressed to utterson so the first one is a new will and it lists utterson as henry jekyll's heir in the event of his disappearance hey, cha -ching. St uh, still not legal i'm not sure you should be doing that with your lawyer you should file with a new lawyer this all seems dodgy to me but whatever again happy to report it's jekyll and hyde i don't give a fuck whatever law the second piece of paper is a note saying listen I know our friend Lanyon, who just died, left you a letter before he died that said, only open in the event of my disappearance, go read his thing first. And then the third one is a packet saying, read me after you've read Lanyon's letter. So if you guys... Right, I'm going to read whatever. Yeah, no, no, I, I, excuse me, you don't get to dictate. Yeah, you yeah. guys are all dead. But just like, if you guys want collating paper the movie, then do I have a great scene for you? That sounds good, yeah. <laughs> you'd like that this chapter it's all dr lanyon's testimony can you just please read this in the voice of sarah jessica parker in sex in the city like uh, her diary you sound a bit like i know actually cold i had to wonder i couldn't help but wonder i've always identified more charlotte 
Well, anyway. This chapter is all Dr. Lanyon's <laughs> testimony. He writes that Henry G. Colt once had him go root around his stuff in his lab. And Lanyon found a blood-red liquid that looked a little bit dodgy. Lanyon also found, while he was rooting around Jekyll's cupboards, found his diary, which traces the successes and failures of some weird experiment. What? Going back many years. I observed that the entries ceased nearly a year ago, and quite abruptly. Here and there, a brief remark was appended to a date, usually no more than a single word. Double. Dr. Lanyon, he's looking around Jekyll's rooms. Jekyll asked him to. Suddenly there's a knock at the door, and he's met by a creepy little man. Remind you of anyone? <laughs> uh, who produces revulsion in him. Lanyon has a weird feeling about the guy, who skulks around him, kind of laughing and saying creepy shit, like, have you got it? Have you got it? And shaking Lanyon. Oh, fuck off, Gollum. This is so... Ugh, I hate this scene. He tells Lanyon that he's going to do a bit of chemistry on that special potion, and it goes pretty magical. The potion turns all sorts of colours and things. He drinks it. His face turns black. So, Ooh, racial reading. Yeah, we've got a bit of that. He grows and swells and turns into our good friend, Dr. Jekyll. Uh, what? Yeah. So, if you didn't know already... Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. Oh my god, Daniel. This is a Hannah Montana situation? <laughs> um, who's Billy Ray Cyrus then? There's also some Billy Ray Cyrus. Lanyon is shaken. So much so that he thinks... No, no, no. Let's, let's reword this, shall we? What I wrote is, Lanyon is shook. Daniel refuses to engage in contemporary parlance. I didn't know that was temporary. I thought you were just wrong. You're, you're welcome to try this again. Lanyon's like, I'm spooked, and dies. <laughs> okay, so all of that was Lanyon's version of the story. Now we get to Jekyll's letter that he's left for Utterson to read after he's read Lanyon's whole testimony, right? So Jekyll writes all about his background. Um, you know, as a young man, he realized that he had a lot of privilege. He wanted to be a credit to it, to be really industrious and good. But he also had a, quote, natural gaiety of disposition. And that could mean three things. So it's fairly coded language. Gaiety of disposition could mean, firstly, that he's just, you know, a lively, fun-loving guy. Good time guy. Secondly, it could be a code for maybe slightly seedier appetites, you know, lust and greed and gluttony. So maybe that means he's been getting up to some, like, youthful scrapes that rich dudes got away with all the time, but he's feeling guilty about him. Or, thirdly, gaiety of disposition could be a queer reading. Um, Jekyll is the least convincing heterosexual I've ever read. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, so I'm kind of leaning towards that one. Um, He's never once in his whole life thought about a lady's boobies. Um, Look within yourself, Daniel. You know it to be true. Some kind of, He clearly had some kind of proclivities that he felt... Were incompatible yeah, with... with upstanding, yeah, you know, the norms of the, yeah his, yeah, his class and stuff. So he attempts to quote, sever in me those provinces of good and ill, which divide and compound man's dual nature. I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged into shame than when I labored 
in the eye of day as the furtherance of knowledge or the relief of sorrow and suffering. So in other words, he's got a devil and an angel on his shoulder. They're both equally powerful. He can't resist either of them, so he just compartmentalizes the shit out of it. So when he's bad, he's really bad. And when he's good, he's a perfect saint. Just this, this fucking nerd, just lean into it, give up Squaresville, come live deliciously, taste butter, wear a pretty dress, whatever Black Philip promises you, really. So then Jekyll starts to wonder, you know, sometimes I go into night mode Jekyll, wouldn't it be great if I could actually separate myself into two separate people? Quote, it was the curse of mankind that these incongruous faggots, meaning sticks in this case, that's not a sort of queer slur here, were thus bound together that in the agonized womb of consciousness these polar twins should be continuously struggling. That whole, like, everyone has two wolves inside them, that bullshit. So again, none of this would have necessarily been seen as gay in the Victorian era, but who, boy, do these lend themselves to gay subtext today? I think that's the important thing, right? Yeah. That it's it's not even that he's talking about gay stuff, but it's that sense of having a a self... I think yourself, yourself that you need to hide or I mean he does a bunch of experiments long story short he meant, invents a potion that can yeah cleave the guy in twain as Hyde he just went out a roistering you know we don't really know what he's up to do we Jekyll or Jekyll is like well you know when when I was being Hyde it was Hyde after all and Hyde alone that was guilty Jekyll was no worse he woke again to his good qualities seemingly unimpaired he would even make haste where it was possible to undo the evil done by Hyde, and thus his conscience slumbered. He starts to kind of fret, doesn't he, a little bit about the character of his um, experiment, because he's like, although Jekyll Jekyll was trying to focus solely on good works, he's like, one was wholly, wholly evil, and the other was still the old Henry Jekyll, that incongruous compound of whose reformation and improvement I had always learned to despair. The movement was thus wholly towards the worst. So there's two guys, Jekyll, he's good and bad, he's a mix like all of us, and then there's Hyde, he's fully bad. So on average, Jekyll is getting worse, seems mm-hmm. to be his, his worry. So the more Jekyll does this, though, unsurprisingly, the more Hyde starts to take over. Um, so he's having a harder and harder time turning back into Dr. Jekyll. Eventually, Hyde starts taking over without Dr. Jekyll even having to take the potion. So Hyde's just kind of broken Jekyll at this point. He's cracked him open like a goddamn glow stick. So Jekyll realizes he's going to have to choose between the two halves of himself. Jekyll had more than a father's interest. Hyde had more than a son's indifference. That is some hot shit. That's some great writing. Mm, I really enjoyed that bit. Just like, I'm your father now, Hyde. Your mother is depravity. Um, This this weird, like, daddy metaphor, which also leans into the queerness as well. Yeah. But also, yeah, that that strange sense of self-alienation. We should talk a little bit about Hyde. The the reason that Hyde is so short is because he's, like, part of Jekyll, but as he gets stronger, he gets taller. Oh, that's that's messed up. That's just weird, isn't it? Yeah. Jekyll tries to abstain. It's that bit earlier on in the story, isn't it, where... Jekyll utters some remarks that Jekyll suddenly becomes a really good holy guy. This is mm-hmm. this is that stage, isn't it? Yet this kind of the evil part of him is like, oh, you know, like doing all that. But that's such a strange bit, isn't it? That Jekyll enjoys the severity of his life. Is that a kind of hedonism? 
There's Jekyll only a hedonist, even when he's trying to not be a hedonist, that turns into a kind of hedonism. I thought this was a, a really rather um, Catholic sort of thing, the sort of mortifications of the flesh and the severity. He's, he's almost like a sort of early saint. And well, that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. that self-mortification <clears throat> turns into a gratifying yes. thing, and that's weird, isn't it? There's, there's some sort of like release that he's getting from the severity. Yeah. So, oh, there's a BDSM. Well, yeah, yeah. There. Who's the real, uh, you know, kinky type? Is it Jekyll or is it Hyde? Um, yeah, Hyde's just honest about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, didn't you write the this guy's a total mess? Yes, I did. Yeah, he is a mess. <laughs> I think that there was at least one woman who read this in 1886 and is like, I can fix him. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that must be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jekyll compares himself to an alcoholic and succumbs to his potion. Hyde bursts out, and that's where he ran into Sir Danvers Carew and, you know, brain the, brain the bugger. The, we get this great bit where Je Jekyll descri uh, describes the kind of post-murder hideout, like hide, so to speak. Uh, no, <laughs> can't make that joke, can we? Because you'll get cross. Like, <laughs> so Hyde hides out in a hotel room, and Jekyll here describes, like, how it was to be Hyde hiding out after the murder. Hyde in danger of his life was a new creature to me, shaken with inordinate anger, strung to the pitch of murder, lusting to inflict pain. Yet the creature was astute, mastered his fury with a great effort of the will. So, he's developing his own kind of morality, Hyde is, because he knows that if he goes out and murders whoever he likes, people will stop him doing it. He's like, you know, he's like, temper, temper the uh, illegality because then I can get away with more of it in the long term. <laughs> is this just what morality is? Is yes. Hyde developing his own morality? Yes. You know, if he lived a bit longer, would he have just become another Jekyll and then he would have had to produce a potion in turn that would produce an evil... Would we have had Jekyll and Hyde <laughs> and then Hyde's little evil man and that guy would become normal and then, you know, just keep going on forever? Right, so we've basically had this story now told to us kind of three times, really. So once was Utterson's... Solving the crime. Solving the crime. Then we get Lanyon's perspective from his letter. Now we get Jekyll his perspective in his letter so you know all the rest jekyll stroke hyde reveals himself to lanyon um so somebody will know the story jekyll locks himself away so hyde can't get out um he tries to get his butler to fetch all those chemical supplies so he can control the transformations but that doesn't work so he's he's sort of built up a tolerance to the junk he transforms into hyde one last time which again we've already seen utterson and the butler broke the door down with an axe and Hyde knew, like, right, this is it. They're going to catch me. I'm going to be executed for murder. So I'll commit suicide rather than being caught. Um, Jekyll and Hyde are dead. Off you fuck, boys. Uh, so the end. There is no follow-up on Utterson and the servants. If, if I were Utterson, I would read this and be like, bitch, what? This is clearly some blackmail plot that's gone insane, and you and Hyde have fled to Tahiti and are trying to stop the cops from looking for you with this mighty Morphin Power Rangers-ass story. I actually kind of hate that we don't get Utterson being more like, this. Incredible. there's something deeper yeah. going on. So Hyde's corpse is there in the lab. Jekyll's not there. Jekyll's saying that he was Hyde all along. You think that Jekyll actually killed Hyde, that Hyde was the patsy to Jekyll? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, yeah. Jekyll's the evil one. Hyde was just an innocent bystander who happened to look evil. Maybe not an innocent bystander. I think they were in on it together. Right. Um, yeah, I don't really have too much else to say about the ending, except good night, Enfield, wherever you are. Okay, so casting this, I think I actually have a pretty decent idea. 
I would want the director to be Alex Garland, who has done Ex Machina and Annihilation. He has a really good tension between things like the natural body and scientific technology, so I think he would he would do a really good version of this. Um, he also does well with slightly surreal landscapes and queer tension. As Jekyll, I would want Oscar Isaac, obviously, going full daddy. And I thought Pedro Pascal would make a slightly dorky Utterson. There's lots of adaptations of this, other is it worth yeah. briefly talking about those? Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, the Hammer Horror one, where he turns into a sexy lady. A uh, nun? She better be a nun. No, just, a, just one of you non, non-women. Non-nun? Yeah. That's, uh, a, that's a wasted pun, come on. She could still be a sexy nun, man. I'm sure she could be. Uh, she put her mind to it. I am, I am <laughs> very disappointed in that. There's Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, a black exploitation one where an African-American scientist turns himself into a murderous white man. He's called Dr. <laughs> Jekyll in the film as well. So. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. You, you couldn't go Dr. Jekyll, Mr. White. Yeah. Because that's, that's yeah. at least a little bit more of a homophone. Yeah. You have not listed... My favorite one. Go on. The Nutty Professor, the 60s version, uh, yeah. with Jerry Lewis yeah. doing a sort of impersonation of his comedy partner, Dean Martin, oh, is that what as that the is? cool guy. Yeah. yeah, and it's such a good Dean Martin impersonation. Like, he's so funny. But, but in the Hammer Horror one, it's a sexy lady. They don't need any other versions as well. <laughs> well, that came... Did that come first or later? What, when was the Hammer Horror one? I'm just saying that all of the other adaptations should have been, like, wiped. Because it's a sexy lady, so yeah. you've you've gotten everything you need. What what about something for me, Daniel? Throw me a bone here. I want to see a man in a nice suit and schmoozy. <laughs> There's a lot of those. What is the deal with that? All those kind of like erotic ones. Is it just they're just picking up on what the book kind of implies? Yes. I swear to God, there was another sexy lady one in. There's a few. I, in, think. I, I think I saw it on cable in the '90s. I think it was Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde. Oh, right. There's one where it's like all from the point of view of the servant. Oh, Mary Riley with Julia Roberts doing a terrible Irish accent. Yeah, that one. And you know who plays Jekyll and Hyde? The most confusing actor for me, because I can't, I can never tell if he's really good or really bad, John Malkovich. All right. And he acts, when he's Hyde in that movie, he acts with his tongue. His tongue is perpetually out in that film. We have a new segment we are adding to this show. Oh, goody. This is where Daniel and I go on Goodreads and find the worst take on whatever book we are reading. Just the the take that is in the worst faith. And I think I found it for this one. Please write in if you have any more. So somebody wrote, Completely overrated and boring. The guy barely kills anyone. It may have been controversial in Victorian England, but now it shows its age. One star. He barely kills anyone! First of all, he really killed Sir Danvers Carew. No, yeah, that's stupid. <clears throat> yeah, don't know what to say. Was it controversial in Victorian England? I'm sure there was. There were certain issues then about um, degenerative stuff. I don't yeah. know if controversial is the right word. The big issue, I suppose, is it suggests a lot of hypocrisy. The great and good are actually prowling, mm. prowling the streets, looking for tail. <laughs> Daniel. So here's some analysis, right? Yes, please. Or rather, a question I have. Oh, okay. Who named Hyde? Who decided his first name should be Edward? Um, you mean in the world of the novel? Yes. Because obviously Robert Louis Stevenson did it. Oh, of course. I forgot that an author wrote this. Of course, yeah. yes. I like to think of him naming himself. 
Yeah, so we're also getting into a period where psychoanalysis and Freud and things were, were starting to become prevalent. There was a lot of work being done on ideas of the hidden self or the double, to the point that by 1890, the term double consciousness, by which we would now know a sort of multiple personality disorder. Is it still called that? I think it's called something else now, but uh, the, the idea of multiple personalities, that was actually fairly commonly understood at the very least in psychology circles and was starting to be known by the general public. So you could do a psychology reading. I imagine Robert Louis Stevenson sitting down going, what's the scariest thing I can think of? And just going, my fucking psyche. Yeah. Is double consciousness, maybe I'm just misremembering this, but doesn't W.E.B. Du Bois have a term a bit like double consciousness about the experience, like the kind of dual ideological experience of black Americans? Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde is about experiencing W. B. Du Bois's double consciousness. Oh my God! You've just cracked this wide open. Yeah, that's cool, yeah. man. That's oh my God! There, there's your final year thesis or something. Yeah, well, w. B. Du Bois, Robert Louis Stevenson, and black exploitation horror. I would, yeah. I would read the shit out of that dissertation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just just wait when everyone does it all together, and then all of a sudden it's yeah. you know sure, turning up on university repositories all as plagiarized. Of listeners, yeah. So we've talked plenty about queerness in this. I came up with a slightly different reading that uh, is still sexually based, but you. but not queer. Is Hyde an STD reading? Because. Ooh. This was around the time that there was the sort of syphilis panic because people were sort of realizing that syphilis could be congenital. Tertiary as well, that's when that started going. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I, I can't remember exactly when it was published, but it was pretty damn close to this being published. The Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, series of short stories called Round the Red Lamp, and there is one about a man who decides he can't get married because he discovers he has inherited congenital syphilis from his grandfather. So it's passed down from his grandfather yeah. to his parent to him, and he's like, I can't do that to my Someone kids else. or my. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ibsen plays around this time always have mm -hmm. people with congenital syphilis as well, don't they? Was it that play Ghosts or something? Yeah, uh, Dr. Rank in The Doll's House kind of implies that he's got congenital syphilis as well. But I just wonder that's sort of that hidden thing in the respectable man. Well, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah no. You're definitely right, because the idea that you, you know, blah, 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 I'm hosting dinner parties, I'm playing bridge, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm, there's a flare-up of something. No, I'm a dandy. Yeah, well, exactly, the bit of the window and shit. But yeah, you go out, you get, you do all your sordid shit, you come back home, no one knows any of the wiser. You pretty much are two people, mm -hmm. but then you bring something back with you. I just like the idea of Utterson as the detective in this going, if you want to catch syphilis, you got to think like syphilis. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about walking in this, so Hyde spends a lot of time trampling people, so he tramples that little girl, he jumps up and down on Sir Danvers Carew. Yeah, his his feet are sort of preferred method of violence, and we spend so much time with Utterson and Enfield walking mm. in this. Jekyll is very stationary. Jekyll never leaves his house. No. What's going on there? Something about mobility? Like, I don't know, there's there's something to be Again, I don't done there. just like keep banging the same drum right, mm -hmm. but the the kind of bourgeois house as the polite face of Jekyll and mm -hmm. then the city as this kind of untamable landscape that where Hyde can kind of ply his trade, isn't there a bit of that? I know it's not quite the same for Utterson and Enfield, although they do get wound up with Hyde. But it opens the on them walking yeah. as well, so I didn't know if it's some sort of sliding scale of mobility where Hyde seems super mobile yeah. and, he's and it's violent and he's jumping up and down on people. Jekyll doesn't really move. 
ever. He's completely stationary in his house and trapped in sort of the confines there, except when he transforms. And then Utterson and Enfield, who are maybe not the greatest person because Enfield is a bit of a rake, but they're they're sort of more a restrained mobility. Yeah. It's a well, it's a novel about the city, isn't it? As yes, well. I suppose that's the that's the key thing as well that the city has a kind of jewels dual dual space with like you know the dangerous classes and then the genteel classes and you know all that sort of you know there's all that stuff going on so i suppose that's what the walking mm. is, a, is about isn't it well it's all about that breaking down of boundaries which i mean mm. was you know the one thing the victorians really loved was classifying things they love mm. to put things in nice neat boxes and then after darwin's theories of evolution and new scientific disciplines like anthropology and sociology all of these very strict boundaries started collapsing so we have a lot of like blurring of class stuff here all of a sudden Hyde is in this aristocratic group you know that mm. seems there's only like five people in the whole mm. city as far as they're concerned there are certainly racial readings of Hyde of it, it, there's some sort of animalistic like is he animal is he human what's yeah. his race yeah. where you know where's he from and the city bleeds into certain things so Jekyll's house in the rich part of town butts up apparently secretly yeah to the dodgy part of town. It's, I'm going to use the <coughs> D word, it's dialectical, because it? <laughs> the city is a whole, and yet it is composed of these ostensibly separate parts. Hyde, it, that's, this is the broader social commentary thing, right? Hyde is a product of Jekyll, just in the same way that all of these kind of awful slum districts are really a product of the world of Utterson and Jekyll. They're a product of the rich, aren't they? Oh, they, nice. So, yeah. yeah. Hyde as the city or as the material conditions that have been brought about by... Or the relationship between Jekyll and Hyde as being a sort of microcosm for the broader inequities of well, the, fact that the they Victorian like to, social system. The fact that they like to compartmentalize things. Yeah. Jekyll's all about compartmentalization, as is Enfield. Yeah. As is Utterson, where he's like, Ev everyone just mind your own business, not our business, yeah, we stay yeah, out yeah. of it. But they're perpetuating these sort of things, and then eventually the circumstances that they have compartmentalized away break out. Yeah. Um, what about genre and yeah. form? I mean, they, they talked about not being able to situate this in any sort of... Oh, you can't genre. compartmentalize it, can you? Yeah. yeah. Even form and content are blowing. The dialectic just is oh, dialectic okay. upon dialectic. I can love I, that. The, the Alf Haben. Yeah, so genre. So it's kind of like a gothic novel, but it's also like a sort of science fiction thing. It's also like a detective novel. What else is it? A bit decadent. Capital D. You know. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're getting a real blend of all of these things. So earlier gothic novels, especially the urban gothic, which kind of got going in the 1830s and 40s as cities sprung up. So we're, we're seeing that again here. They, they talked about realism mm, a little yeah. bit. Uh, the, and the detective story, as you're saying, because the detective story got kick-started with Poe. Oh my god, you're right. This is He is Scotland's answer to Poe. And it, at the end, it turns bizarrely into a sort of epistolary novel, the sort of almost older, yeah. much more conservative form than, than the text has. Weirdly, at the most exciting what-the-hell part. Yeah, anticipating Dracula kind of, isn't it? Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. I find it funny that it sort of regresses in form as it's sort of progressing in terms of genre. I suppose you could also talk about, just as it turns out that Jekyll has separated himself into these different selves, so too does the book separate into mm -hmm. different narrators, right? Like it's you've got these different letters compartmentalized, you know, mm -hmm. you could say that the form again matches the content in that respect. Yeah. Should we do some advice? Yes, please. Okay, so we've talked on this podcast before about what one of the best ways of learning how to close read is by paying attention to the weird patterns you spot and trying to figure out what's going on. Like, why does this bit of imagery keep coming up? Why does this 
particular type of language recur. But another thing to do is to pay attention to what is not there. So a pattern that's almost conspicuous by its absence. And in this book, the thing that I noticed almost immediately, where are all the women? There is one woman in this, and that's the maid. She doesn't get a name. She doesn't really get any screen time. I don't think she gets any actual dialogue. The narrator just sort of sums up what she says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, passive this speech, is yeah. this is just really interesting. None of the men have wives, even though they're all wealthy and old enough. It's just you know, mm. it's rain and men. Hallelujah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so that's that's um, another way to get a close reading where you're just like, wait, where are all the you know whatever. And you can build a reading off of what's not there. Um, that's some good advice. Yes, thank you. Don't patronize me. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the clue to the next episode, we are doing another very famous 19th century text that's also titled Blank and Blank. Ooh, what could it be? There are several of them. So please write into our email at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen. It just really helps us out. And as I said, we now have a TikTok, which we are very slowly learning how to use, and an Instagram, and all of our videos are up on YouTube. So I don't really understand that TikTok. But you're so good at it. Uh, Doing your dances. Like Mozart or something. Like a prodigy. Eating Tide Pods. I even know what that is. <laughs> What's a Tide Pod? <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart. And cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.